everyone. This is Terry Cook, and we are going to be reading chapters 5, 6, and 7 today from Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, if you are a member of the Unscrewing Screwtape Facebook page, um, I would appreciate some discussion in the discussion group last time for episode two, I posted some questions and I don't know, I, I, either people don't want to commit themselves to talking about personal, I don't know, opinions, I guess, on Facebook. This politically is not the the best time maybe to put things out there. And that could be part of the problem. But if you feel led to give some comments um, to the reflection questions, please do. If not, at least use the re reflection questions to do a little soul searching, see if maybe you can apply some of this insight into your own life. Okay, so without further ado, chapter five, letter five. My dear Wormwood, it is a little bit disappointing to expect a detailed report on your work and to receive instead such a vague rhapsody as your last letter. You say you are delirious with joy because the European humans have started another of their wars. I see very well what has happened to you. You are not delirious. You are only drunk. Reading between the lines in your very unbalanced account of the patient's sleepless night, I can reconstruct your state of mind fairly accurately. For the first time in your career, you have tasted that wine, which is the reward of all our labors. The anguish and bewilderment of a human soul and it has gone to your head. I can hardly blame you. I do not expect old heads on young shoulders. Did the patient respond to some of your terror pictures of the future? Did you work in some good self-pitying glances at the happy past? Some fine thrills in the pit of his stomach were there, you played your violin prettily, did you? Well, well, it's all very natural. But do remember, Wormwood, that duty comes before pleasure. If any present self-indulgence on your part leads to the ultimate loss of the prey, you will be left eternally thirsting for that draft of which you are now so much enjoying your first sip. If, on the other hand, by steady and cool-headed application, here and now, you can finally secure his soul, he will then be yours forever. A brim full living chalice of despair and horror and astonishment, which you can raise to your lips as often as you please. So do not allow any temporary excitement to distract you from the real business 
of undermining faith and preventing the formation of virtues. Give me, without fail, in your next letter, a full account of the patient's reactions to the war, so that we can consider whether you are likely to do more good by making him an extreme patriot or an ardent pacifist. There are all sorts of possibilities. In the meantime, I must warn you not to hope too much from a war. Of course, a war is entertaining. The immediate fear and suffering of the humans is a legitimate and pleasing refreshment to our myriads of toiling workers. But what permanent good does it do us unless we make use of it for bringing souls to our Father below? When I see the temporal sufferings of humans who finally escape us, I feel as if I had been allowed to taste the first course of a rich banquet and then denied the rest. It is worse than not having tasted it at all. The enemy, true to his barbarous methods of warfare, allows us to see the short misery of his favorites only to tantalize and torment us to mock the incessant hunger which, during this present phase of the great conflict, his blockade is admittedly imposing. Let us therefore think rather how to use than how to enjoy this European war. For it has certain tendencies inherent in it which are in themselves by no means in our favor. We may hope for a good deal of cruelty and unchastity, but if we are not careful, we shall see thousands turning in this tribulation to the enemy, while tens of thousands who do not go so far as that will nevertheless have their attention diverted from themselves to values and causes which they believe to be higher than the self." I know that the enemy disapproves many of these causes, but that is where he is so unfair. He often makes prizes of humans who give their lives for causes he thinks bad on the monstrously sophistical ground that the humans thought them good and were following the best they knew. Consider, too, what undesirable deaths occur in wartime. Men are killed in places where they knew they might be killed and to which they go. If they are at all of the enemy's party, prepared. How much better for us if all humans died in costly nursing homes amid doctors who lie, nurses who lie, friends who lie, as we have trained them, promising life to the dying, encouraging the belief that sickness excuses every indulgence, and even, if our workers know their job, withholding all suggestion of a priest, lest it should betray to the sick man of his true condition. And how disastrous for us is the continual remembrance of death which war enforces. One of our best weapons, contented worldliness, is rendered useless. In wartime, not even a human can believe he's going to live forever. 
I know that Scabtree and others have seen in wars a great opportunity for attacks on faith, but I think that view was exaggerated. The enemy's human partisans have all been plainly told by him that suffering is an essential part of what he calls redemption, so that a faith which is destroyed by a war or a pestilence cannot really have been worth the trouble of destroying. I am speaking now of diffused suffering over a long period, such as the war will produce. Of course, at the precise moment of terror, bereavement, or physical pain, you may catch your man when his reason is temporarily suspended. But even then, if he applies to enemy headquarters, I have found that the post is nearly always defended. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Chapter 6 My dear Wormwood, I am delighted to hear that your patient's age and profession made it possible, but by no means certain, that he will be called up for military service. We want him to be in the maximum uncertainty, so that his mind will be filled with the contradictory pictures of the future, every one of them which arouses hope or fear. There is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Your patient will, of course, have picked up on the notion that he must submit with patience to the enemy's will. What the enemy means by this is primarily that he should accept with patience the tribulation which has actually been dealt out to him, the present anxiety and suspense. It is about this that he is to say, Thy will be done. For the daily task of bearing this, that the daily bread will be provided. It is your business to see that the patient never thinks of the present fear as his appointed cross, but only of things he is afraid of. Let him regard them as crosses. Let him forget that, since they are incompatible, they cannot all happen to him, and let him try to practice fortitude and patience to them in advance. For real resignation at the same moment to a dozen different hypothetical fates is almost impossible, and the enemy does not greatly assist those who are trying to attain it. Resignation to present and actual suffering, even where that suffering consists of fear, is far easier and is usually helped by this direct action. An important spiritual law here is involved. I have explained that you can weaken his prayers by diverting his attention from the enemy himself to his own states of mind about the enemy. On the other hand, fear becomes easier to master when the patient's mind is diverted from the thing feared to the fear itself. Considered as a present and undesirable state of his own mind, and when he regards the fear 
as his appointed cross, he will inevitably think of it as a state of mind. One can therefore formulate the general rule. In all activities of mind which favor our cause, encourage the patient to be unself-conscious and to concentrate on the object, but in all activities favorable to the enemy, bend his mind back on itself. Let an insult or a woman's body so fix his attention outward that he does not reflect, I am now entering into the state called anger or the state called lust. Contrarywise, let the reflection, quote, my feelings are now growing more devout or more charitable, unquote. So fix his attention inward that he no longer looks beyond himself to see our enemy or his own neighbors. As regards his more general attitude to the war, you must not rely too much on those feelings of hatred which the humans are so fond of discussing in Christian or anti-Christian periodicals. In his anguish, the patient can, of course, be encouraged to revenge himself by some vindictive feelings directed towards the German leaders, and that is good as far as it goes. But it is usually a sort of melodramatic or mythical hatred directed against imaginary scapegoats. He has never met these people in real life. They are lay figures modeled on what he gets from the newspapers. The results of such fanciful hatred are often most disappointing. And of all humans, the English are in this respect the most deplorable milksops. They are creatures of that miserable sort who loudly proclaim that torture is too good for their enemies and then give tea and cigarettes to the first wounded German pilot who turns up at the back door. Do what you will. There is going to be some benevolence, as well as some malice, in your patient's soul. The great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbors, whom he meets every day, and to thrust his benevolence out to the remote circumference, to people he does not know. The malice thus becomes wholly real and the benevolence largely imaginary. There's no good at all in inflaming his hatred of Germans if, at the same time, a pernicious habit of charity is growing up between him and his mother, his employer, and the man he meets in the train. Think of your man as a series of concentric circles, his will being the innermost, his intellect coming next, and finally his fantasy. You can hardly hope at once to exclude from all the circles everything that smells of the enemy. But you must keep on shoving all the virtues outward till they are finally located in the circle of fantasy and all the desirable qualities inward into the will. It is only in so far as they reach the will and are there embodied in habits 
that virtues are really fatal to us. I don't, of course, mean what the patient mistakes for his will, the conscious fume and fret of resolutions and clenched teeth, but the real center, what the enemy calls the heart. All sorts of virtues painted in the fantasy or approved by the intellect or even, in some measure, loved and admired, will not keep a man from our father's house. Indeed, they may make him more amusing when he gets there. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Chapter 7 My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy, for the moment, is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. At least not yet. I have great hopes that we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is, in effect, belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to the belief in the enemy. The, quote, life force, the worship of sex, and some aspects of psychoanalysis may here prove useful if once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshipping what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits. Then the end of the war will be in sight. But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights, and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. I had not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. Not always, of course, but at this period. Some ages are lukewarm and complacent, and then it is our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Other ages, of which the present is one, 
are unbalanced and prone to faction, and it is our business to inflame them. Any small coterie bound together by some interest which other men dislike or ignore tends to develop inside itself a hothouse of mutual admiration and towards the outer world a great deal of pride and hatred which is entertained without shame because the cause is its sponsor and it is thought to be impersonal. Even when the little group exists originally for the enemy's own purposes, this remains true. We want the church to be small, not only that fewer men may know the enemy, but also that those who do may acquire the uneasy intensity and the defensive self-righteousness of a secret society or a clique. The church herself is, of course, heavily defended, and we have never yet quite conceded in giving her all the characteristics of a faction. But subordinate factions within her have often produced admirable results. From the parties of Paul and of Apollos at Corinth, down to the high and low parties in the Church of England. If your patient can be induced to become a conscientious objector, he will automatically find himself one of a small, vocal, organized, unpopular society, and the effects of this on one so new to Christianity will almost certainly be good. But only almost certainly. Has he had serious doubts about the lawfulness serving in a just war before this present war of serving began? Is he a man of great physical courage, so great that he will have no half-conscious misgivings about the real motives of his pacifism? Can he, when nearest to honesty, no human is ever very near, feel fully convinced that he actuated wholly by the desire to obey the enemy? If he is that sort of man, his pacifism will probably not do us much good, and the enemy will probably protect him from the usual consequences of belonging to a sect. Your best plan in that case would be to accept a sudden, confused, emotional crisis from which he might emerge as an uneasy convert to patriotism. Such things can often be managed. But if he is the man I take him to be, try pacifism. Whichever he adopts, your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as part of his religion. Then let him under the influence of the partisan spirit come to regard it as the most important part then quietly and gradually nurse him on to the stage at which the religion becomes merely a part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. The attitude which you want to guard against is that in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience.
once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, provided that meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. He is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cageful down here. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape.